You're listening to the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network. This is Drive Time with Travis Wingfield. Back to throw Tua, looking. Flips it down the wide open! <laughs> Touchdown, Tyreek Hill! Unbelievable! Just flew by him for a second time. Tua knew where he was going right away. How the hit is that little man? I really hope you soon jump on his bandwagon. Waddle, waddle. To a shotgun, back to throw, looking, steps up, fires, touchdown. Okay. It's Waddle. His sixth touchdown Six pass touchdown of the game. day. Drive time with Travis Wingfield begins now. Let me check your pulse if you're not fired up. What is up, Dolph fans, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast Part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and on today's show, it is a Wednesday. That means we get to hear from coach and quarterback, and since that quarterback is back, I'm going to take a look at some of my favorite plays this year from QB1, and since it's Wednesday, that also means we're looking at five big picture things that I think, plus we'll hear from some of the 72 team, as well as Mike McDaniel. Plenty more to come your way here from the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex. This is... The Drive Time Podcast. So I ended last Wednesday's podcast talking about Mariners and Astros and how that series really brought on a whirlwind of emotions. And I would say 90% of that was tied to thinking about Jason, Mr. Jenkins. A week later, Jason's Astros are headed back to their sixth consecutive American League Championship Series. But man, I just can't help but think about the conversations that he and I would have had after each one of those nail-biting, tense, tight games the entire series that resulted in a series sweep for the Houston Astros. And it's funny to think, you know, how important we as fans think the outcomes of these games are. But if I learned anything from that series, it's that a lot of things transcend the scoreboard. And the entire series, all I could think about was the true value in sports. And that is the communities it creates. That's what Jason was all about, right? Bringing people together and what better avenue than sports than to do that. I know we didn't talk about that in the lead, but I just wanted to put a bow on that from the podcast last week. But Jason, I'm telling you right now, we'll be back next year. We're going to get y'all in 2023. I also wanted to make that comment because there was a great story on the Miami Herald today on on Tuesday, I should say, about Tua Tungavailoa and his impact and what he means to the Miami Dolphins record. Barry Jackson wrote that piece where he talked to Duke Riley and Eric Rowe about Tua's involvement in the locker room, talking to not just the offensive players, defensive players as well, talking trash on the practice field, inviting guys over to his house to hang out after practice. Really good stuff. Barry Jackson, Miami Herald, go check it out. It just reminded me about the connections and, you know, kind of relating back to, you know, my relationship with Jason about what sports is all about and the camaraderie and the community and the brotherhood, not just for the players, but for the people that follow the sport, for people that cover the sport. Uh, it's the most important thing to me. And so I just wanted to put a bow on that. And also we'll go ahead and turn the page here now and get into Dolphins talk on this Miami Dolphins podcast network. I know we're about three minutes into the show right now and we haven't talked Dolphins football yet, but we're going to go ahead and do that right now with five things that I think, and we start with number one, and to me, it's that the defense looks to be hitting their stride. 10 three and outs last week is to me a better sign than if we had generated a whole bunch of takeaways. Don't get me wrong, takeaways change the complexion of the game, have the biggest impact on the scoreboard, but takeaways 
are not as easily forecastable or repeatable. At times, they can be a little bit random. But to stymie an offense with the firepower that the Vikings have on 10 of their 14 drives, not even allow a first down, that is, I mean, again, a takeaway is the, the ultimate for a defense, but a three and out is got to be right there. I mean, you can flip the field, you can control time of possession, you can maximize the amount of possessions your offense gets by doing that. It's a really big deal. And so to stymie them on 10 of their 14 drives, 15 if you include kneel downs, we don't do that around here. We add context to our drives, Pat. And look, year to year, carryover is hardly relevant, right? But I do think there's some modicum of relevance here given two things. Number one, the scheme for this defense is relatively similar, at least the nuts and bolts of it. You adapt, you change, you add wrinkles each year, but it's the same guy with the same principles calling this stuff, right? Josh Boyer. And two... The personnel is largely unchanged. I mean, aside from injuries mounting in certain spots, the cornerback position most notably, largely the same rotation up front, largely the same linebacking crew. And aside from Byron Jones being down, it's like the exact same secondary against Sands injuries. Javon Holland, Brandon Jones, Eric Rowe, Xavier Howard, Byron Jones out, Nick Needham out. Those guys are or were going into the season you know, your top six guys in terms of the depth chart in the secondary. And so with that in mind, you look back at 2020 and it was week five when the defense really found its stride in a blowout win over the 49ers. Last year, I think we saw the defense get its footing in a loss. The week eight game at the Buffalo Bills when they had kept Josh Allen and the Bills out of the end zone for nearly three quarters. Their first score came with 349 on the clock in quarter number three. And then from there, we saw them hold Houston to nine points, Baltimore to 10 points, the Jets to 17, Panthers 10, Giants 9, Jets 24, although one of those was a pick six, and Saints to three points. A dominant run allowing just 11.7 points per game and winning all seven of those games. That coming off an eight-game stretch where it was 29.1 points per game. A big shift. Mid-season just happened, right? Snap your fingers and there it goes. In 2020, it was a 24 points per game allowed start through a one and three record through the first four games. Then it was 14 and a half points per game over another eight game stretch that produced seven victories. And I mentioned this on the Sunday recap pod, but the style of quarterback play to me is notable here as we try to look for reasons why this is the case, right? Why are the Dolphins going through four or five game stretches to start a season where it's not as good and then all of a sudden it clicks and they get hot? Now, they have had success against some mobile quarterbacks. I don't want to make it sound like they're just lost against those guys. We saw them hold the Allen-led Bills to just 19 points. We saw them completely stymie the most athletic quarterback the league has ever seen in Lamar Jackson last year for 10 points in a horrible game for that Ravens offense. But the numbers against quarterbacks who don't scramble hardly ever or have designed runs called for them ever, the proof has been in the pudding there. That stretch back in 2020. Here's the quarterbacks that it started with. Jimmy Garoppolo, Joe Flacco, Jared Goff. 34 points allowed in three games, eight takeaways. Then Kyler Murray shows up, and it's 31 points for the Cardinals offense. Still a Dolphins victory to a big game. Then you go back to Herbert. He's certainly athletic, but he doesn't run a whole lot. He can scramble. Drew Locke, Sam Darnold, Brandon Allen, and it's back to 17, 23, and seven points. 2021, that stretch of seven wins straight is another collection of quarterbacks who had fewer than 10 scrambles and design runs the entire season. That's kind of my my threshold here. Have you scrambled and had design runs 10 or more times or less? Because that kind of tells you what type of quarterback you are. Well, that wasn't the start of the stretch as it was with Tyrod Taylor and Lamar Jackson, who obviously are two of the most athletic quarterbacks ever to play this game. 
But then it was Joe Flacco, a combination of a post-athletic running quarterback, Cam Newton, with P.J. Walker coming in, who's also a pocket quarterback, Mike Glennon, Zach Wilson, and Ian Book. And only two of those guys had more than 10 scrambles and design runs on the entire year. So what I'm ultimately getting at, that's what the schedule now produces up through the bye week. We'll see if it's Kenny Pickett or Mitch Trubisky on Sunday. Jared Goff, Justin Fields is super athletic. So that's, I guess, a a, a detour from this course. Jacoby Brissett, Davis Mills, Jimmy Garoppolo, and then Justin Herbert in week 14 before Josh Allen, Aaron Rodgers, Mac Jones, Zach Wilson to finish out the schedule. So (laughs) now they have to go execute. They have to put in the work to repeat those performances that they've put up in the past couple of years. But that's the point of this big picture item, I think, I think. I think the defense showed us signs against Kirk Cousins and the Vikings offense of what they can be, and I'm really excited to see if they can keep that rolling. And all of that is to say that even against the athletic mobile quarterbacks, I mean, going back to last year, we mentioned it, Tyrod Taylor, Lamar Jackson did a good job against those guys. Lamar had his revenge game this year by in a lot of ways. Josh Allen, it's been three straight games where he hasn't been at his typical dominant performances, so get the athletic quarterback thing kind of sorted out here, and then also handle the quarterbacks that don't have the same type of mobility, design, run, scramble type of plays in their statistics. It's a good omen going forward against either style of quarterback. I'm excited about this Dolphins defense. Number two, Christian Wilkins, Zach Sealer, Jalen Phillips pushing up leaderboards. This could have been on topic number one, but I wanted to separate them because I want to give these guys their own limelight here. Christian Wilkins right now is second in run-stop win rate. 49% of the snaps he wins against the run. He's fourth in pass-rush win rate at 18% among defensive tackles. Second and fourth. It's Pro Bowl season for Christian Wilkins. Jalen Phillips is eighth among defensive ends outside linebackers, edge defenders, with 33% pressure rate. Or Sorry, sorry, sorry. Run-stop win rate. He's also leading the team in pressures with 18 They're picking up more and more here. He's now 28th in the NFL at the edge position, which I know sounds like it's not a very high mark, but there are like 178 of these players uh, in the league. So he's in the top 20%, or I should say the top 80%, 80th percentile of pass rushers off the edge. Zach Sealer is 10th in run stop win rate at 43%. And just to kind of finish off for posterity here on the offensive line, ESPN measures O-line win rates as well. Connor Williams is fourth in run block win rate among centers at 76%. So I just wanted to go ahead and shorten that or shoehorn that in here, I should say. I believe Teron Armstead fell just out of the threshold because he's not on the graphic, but he is at 95% in pass block win rate, which would be fourth, but he's not in that current graphic. Thing I think number three, Tyreek is that dude, man. I don't think I really need to try to argue this point all that hard. I think most of you probably agree. The attention that he commands, the way he forces coverage to play so far off. We'll talk about this in our next takeaway about how the skill group can challenge whatever defensive system you throw at us. And Tyreek is a huge part of that. Also, when you can throw on fourth down and five and a play you have to have to a guy who's being double covered because he can generate five yards of separation against bracket coverage, I just don't think you can quantify that value. It's immeasurable. I also want to say Jalen Waddle, too, for all intents and purposes, is that dude, too, because I'm just really enjoying watching these two guys together do what they do, and I'll say it here in this next takeaway. I really think we're just beginning to scratch the surface with these two guys. It might be takeaway number five, but we'll get there eventually because thing I think number four is that efficiency meets expanded possessions equals complementary football. 
Let's repeat that again. Efficiency meets expanded possessions equals complementary football. So if you look at the Dolphins' offense the first three weeks of the season versus the last three weeks, what's the difference? Weeks one through three, second in offensive EPA with 32. That's points uh, expected points added. And the way you define that stat is this statistic used to try to, def- to define how many points a player or play is worth to a team. Every play is considered with context in mind, meaning down and distance and field position are used to evaluate the amount of EPA compared to the actual result of the play. If that sounds like a lot, I just ask for some trust in it in the same way that for whatever reason, analytics seems to be a bad word, a cuss word in football. Like, now all analytics is is just giving you additional information to help inform your decision making. It's evidence. It's not analytics. Remember the resistance that baseball had to sabermetrics for a long, long time? Well, now football, they made a movie about it. <laughs> oh, these money ball things going to work. Yeah, worked out pretty well. Football's in that same phase right now, but the fact of the matter is this. There's no model that can perfectly predict everything. No one's trying to say that. We're just trying to maximize the resources we have to get the most accurate model we possibly can. And just like in baseball, when OPS took over as the primary stat, because no stat correlates more with winning in baseball than OPS and OPS allowed. It's on base plus slugging measures your total bases earned over plate appearances and at bats. Uh, Just like that, EPA is a very good indicator of success. So that's my diatribe on EPA and advanced metrics. So Miami weeks one through three, second EPA at 32, and one of the arguments I recall seeing was that, well, they're only scoring 13 points on offense against the Patriots. They only scored 20 points against the Bills. But that's why I love advanced metrics, because it provides what? Oh, context. Travis loves context. So you can look at volume and make your assumptions, but that doesn't measure efficiency. Another sport crossover reference here in basketball, who makes a bigger impact on a game? A player who shoots 10 threes and makes three of them? Or a player who shoots two threes and makes both of them? Nine points is more than six, yeah, but player B used two possessions to get us six points, where player A used up 10 of our possessions we're going to get to get us nine points. One of those is one less than one point per possession compared to three points per possession. You're probably asking, Travis, where the hell are you going here, dog? Big dog? Trust me, this has all been worked out, so stay with me. So that 32 EPA in weeks one through three was paired with 2.81 points per drive. For the longest time, two points per drive was always a target point. I haven't seen the numbers this year, but it's probably down given scoring being at like a 10-year low right now. Those 2.81 points per game per drive, or I should say per drive, were first in the NFL. The last three weeks, we were 28th in offensive EPA and 29th in points per drive at 1.3. These stats to me prove the complementary nature of the Dolphins' operation during the win streak compared to the opposite of that, during the losing streak. And we arrive at the conclusion of all this. I think the offense is close to getting back to that efficiency, especially if you get some guys back as we wait to see the status of players like Teron Armstead, Austin Jackson, obviously Tua preparing as though he's going to start the game on Sunday night. A return of offensive efficiency paired with the direction I think the defense is going in. That's thing number four that I think that we can get back to offensive efficiency and as a result, see the entire team get back to the complimentary style of football that we love to see that produced three straight wins over three good teams. But just in case it's not abundantly clear, everyone has to do their part, right? The entire 53. Special teams got to step it up. Defense has to keep it rolling and be even better with the takeaways and splash play. So it's a total team effort, but I think that offensive efficiency can help out the other sides as much as anything else. 
Number five, this is five things, I think. And the last thing is that the offense is really close to clicking on all cylinders. I mentioned this on the All-22 podcast, how I was a fan of the structure and spacing of the offense time and time again against those Vikings. Honestly, with the way that they showed they can attack gaps and zones and the daring nature of playing man coverage against the speed this offense has, like, try it if you want at your own peril. I just think the offense is equipped to be able to attack any look you give it. Now, executing is never guaranteed, but just in terms of how I think this offense is designed to be flexible and really go after potential vulnerabilities, I think that's getting better and better each week. I think the run game has a lot of moments the last few weeks. I think the passing game is obviously productive, but I think we're really on the cusp in a lot of areas, and I fully believe in the personnel and staff to execute and to get us to that point that we want to go to. Injuries clearly have been a bugaboo, but you can look at any team across the league and say that. Like, look at the Chargers on Monday Night Football. They were down to their third-string center and had three rookies from left tackle, left guard to center position. That's a tough, tough way to make a living. So there you go. Those are the five things, I think, on this Wednesday, heading into week number seven. We'll go ahead and take a break here and come back on the other side and hear from some of the 1972 alumni, as well as looking at some top passes this year from our offense. That's next. Drive Time Podcast, your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We'll go ahead and get to some of the media here from, let's see, who was it? We are honoring the 1972 team, the 50th anniversary on Sunday night against the Pittsburgh Steelers. We had Larry Sanka, Larry Little, Paul Warfield, and Bob Greasy uh, were available to the media on Tuesday. But I want to look back here first, excuse me, at five of my favorite plays this year and revisit those films and break it down. My five favorite passes of the year. Number five, stick nod to Jalen against the Ravens. It's second down and 13 down seven, nothing ball on the minus three yard line, 21 personnel, empty formation with a four man front and off coverage from the defense. We pick up the four man rush. Well, Tua works to the boundary, the short side of the field comes back to the field, the wide side and does a little shoulder roll to waddle on a stick route. A stick route is where you put your foot in the ground, show the quarterback your numbers, quick throw, seven, eight yards, whatever the case may be, stick route. Stick nod is where you fake the stick and go back upfield. The stick gets Patrick Queen, the linebacker, to take one step up, and Marcus Williams, the boundary side safety, has rolled to the boundary because he's keying Tua's initial head movements, which takes him to the backside of the formation. It gives him three steps of width from Marcus Williams to where Waddle is because of that. So he's literally moving two people to create space from his pre-snap read to his post-snap application and puts the football in a literal perfect position over the linebacker on Waddle's back shoulder away from where the safety is. Keyhole accuracy, throwing the ball from the middle of the end zone to the 20-yard line, 25-yard keyhole shot. It gives Waddle room, and of course, he picks up 42 yards after the catch for a gain of 59 yards, Jalen Waddle. Dime. Number four, Waddle again. Touchdown versus the Patriots. We talked about some of the fine details that can take this offense to another level. What better example than this one? Waddle 
on the top of a stack where you have a receiver stacked behind him, wins inside access against inside leverage with a post safety and backside hook defender potentially impacting his slant from the other side of the formation. Tua takes the snap and looks to the backside to hold that hook backer, which creates the smallest of windows for Waddle. He then whips back to the front side and he throws the ball before he even sees it. Why? Because the backside read gave him frontside information. That's been the biggest thing for me with Tua this year is how quickly he's picking up stuff that should be blind to him based upon the information he has on what's in front of him. And then the ball is perfect and Waddle takes care of the rest. The nicest part of it all, Tua accomplished all of that on one hitch timing. The fast processing is not just the difference between completing it and getting a first down, but creating the chance after the catch. High, high, high level stuff. And that's before you talk about ball placement in the right exact spot. Number three, the throw to Mike Gesicki versus the Bengals. Second down, 13. End of the first quarter. Down 7-3 on the scoreboard. We are three by one to the field. Three receivers to the wide side. One receiver to the boundary, to the short side. With Mike Gesicki as the two to the field, which means your furthest receiver out is your one. Next guy in your two. Closest guy to the formation is your three. Mike is in the middle. He's a two. The slot. I guess there's two slots there. But Mike, Mike takes an inside release to run a deep out route. And pressure is in on Tua before Mike even gets to the top of that route. Tua speeds up the drop, hitches up, and as he slides around the rush, the ball comes out before Mike has even come out of the break, before he's even cleared that hook defender. And there are two defenders within five yards and four defenders within 10 yards. And the ball is once again exactly where it needs to be. Low percentage throw that's right on the money for a big conversion. More very high-level stuff. Number two, the first Tyreek touchdown pass against Baltimore. Third and 10, down by 14. Just dropped a second down pass that would have been a first down. We have Tyreek to the boundary against a too high safety look and off coverage from the cloud corner. So, bunch of cushion for Tyreek. My favorite part about this play is how Tua sees the overload pressure from the strong side, the other side of the formation, and just casually slides his drop away from it. And it bought the requisite time that he needed to uncork a ball from his own 42, which then allows Tyreek who's at the 30-yard line, by the way. He lets it go at the 30-yard line, and the safety's at the 25, which five yards before he's even leaving. Elite-level anticipation. And the ball drops into the bucket at the two. He slows up a little bit, but feel free to go watch literally anyone else throw deep balls. It happens like every dang time, so don't get weird about it. It's a 48-yard touchdown, 58 yards through the air. If you take where he lets it go and then where it lands, obviously behind the line of scrimmage, and it puts Miami right back in the game. Dime. Number one. Third and 22, my favorite throw by a quarterback in the post-Marino era. Third and 22, trailing by three points, 11 minutes to play against those damn Buffalo Bills. Buffalo brings just three. They have three backers in the hook, two cloud corners out wide, two high safeties. And Waddle widens one of those safeties with a great route to the fake to the, or with a fake to the flag, a fake to the corner on a copper route, corner post. Tua holds the backside safety with his locking on of Tua, or Tyreek, I should say, on that backside. And once again, the backside information gives him what he needs on the front side so he can throw the ball before he actually sees it. Ball is out. It could not be more perfect. It's a handoff from where he throws it on his own 39-yard line to where Waddle catches it at the 11-yard line. So 50 yards through the air, dime, handoff, and the time of the game, man, what a great play. There are so many of these. The Craycraft touchdown against Buffalo, the Waddle winner against Baltimore. Those are tough to leave off the list, but it's basically just two a thrown with anticipation and literally hitting the keyhole. That's just it, man. Perfect passes, passes, passes. I just can't wait to watch him play this Sunday. Let's go. Before we turn the page here and get to Mike McDaniel and Tua's Wednesday press conference conferences, 
Go check out the YouTube channel for the press conferences of the Dolphins alumni who are going to be in attendance on Sunday night for a big celebration, the 50th anniversary of the 1972 undefeated team. Larry Little, Bob Greasy, Paul Warfield, and Larry Sanko were on those calls. They'll all be out there on Sunday night. Primetime football in the throwback uniforms. We can't wait to celebrate. Let's go ahead and take our last break here and come back on the other side with those press conferences of Mike McDaniel and Tua Tungavailoa. That's next. Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We pick it back up here on a Wednesday afternoon with the Wednesday morning press conference. First of Mike McDaniel. We'll hear from quarterback Tua Tungavailoa here in just a second. But we start here with Coach, who provided some injury updates with regards to Jalen Waddell, Keon Crossan, and Cater Kohu, just mentioning that those guys are going to do everything they can to get back onto the field to play on Sunday. He said they're optimistic about Waddell being able to play on Sunday. He, of course, returned to the game after his uh, injury that he sustained in the game against the Vikings. Coach was asked about special teams and how he evaluates that process of kind of some some good plays, some good down punts, and also some gaps here and there. Here's Coach talking about his special teams through the first six weeks and what he sees that really encourages him on that side of the football. I don't look at everything um, entirely as one thing. I kind of go through the progression of each game because one thing specifically with our crew, um, meaning our team, uh, we've had um, a good amount of lineup changes. So you're assessing the way, the way I like to do it is, you know, what are we identifying the unit we're playing against as? How are we preparing for them? How are the players executing um, what we've prepared for them? Are we articulating things appropriately was were things told correctly or not um i think that the results haven't been where we want them there's no doubt about that um what i do see um and what what is important to me i know is the fabric of teams that are able to have success in any phase is there you don't see loafing you don't you don't see lack of strain. Um, th- these are things that um, the miscues have to do uh, with things that need to be coached up, and I don't continually see the same exact thing. So my confidence um, has not been affected. Um, we, it, it's more that are we continuing to get better and do those same things that happened last week or the week before happened this week relative to our opponent. I thought Coach's answer about Sunday Night Football, which he said that he kind of picked up from Kyle Shanahan something like 10 years ago, about 
how more than anything, not the TV or the viewership, it's that you're the only game that's on that particular time, and the entire league is home from their games after Sunday afternoon, so it's an opportunity for the players to perform in front of their peers. Again, if you want to see these full quotes, go to the YouTube channel and see Mike McDaniel's entire press conference. Let's go ahead and spin this forward now. As coach was asked, what do you want to see from Tua this week to prove that he can be the quarterback that he was before the injury? Here's head coach Mike McDaniel. It's pretty easy considering considering there's um, there's an extensive amount of time spent on on the relationship between the starting quarterback and the head coach and the play caller so you know those are hours and hours of field meeting room time and you get to know each other pretty well so what I want to see is the same locked in guy that I know when he's on it he's um uh he's laser focused he's in his normal mood um but he doesn't lose a attention span at the task at hand and that's what what I've grown to love about the guy that's why he's been able to have some success in a completely new language and system um and that, that would be my expectation for this week because it is um, not the, uh, the, the Tua Dolphins. He's right. It is a 53-man roster, but we did go back to the quarterback position with our next question here. Uh, a really good follow-up question about what Tua has kind of been about the last couple of weeks, bouncing around the building. Uh, Coach mentioned his thirst for the brotherhood that comes with playing football, which I thought was a really cool way to describe it. But he was also asked about how he's embraced the, the role of that leader and the practice field last week when he knew he wasn't playing the game on Sunday, but getting back out there around the guys, the camaraderie that he illustrates, but also the way he works, and we're hearing a lot about this from Coach and, you know, this season, but more recently, even more, I should say, that the way that Tua works and the way he prepares and the attention span, the love of the game, all that stuff is really high level right now. Let's go ahead and hear from Coach about how Tua embraced his role in practice last so th- week. That's not um, a lip service, like, like thing that you're just like, I'm going to be a leader, and that's what's cool about it. What you saw was every single play – of practice, saying the play, um, you know, as I after I say it like he said in the huddle, then um, watching the the timing of the of the concept, watching the footwork of um, Skyler, um, getting excited when um, perfect technique is executed because he knows it um, exactly what it looks like, um, and then you know you go through. A entire practice, you're used to being the starting quarterback, which in the NFL season means you are taking every snap when the offense is up. So you get in a routine where it kind of goes by fast because you have all this stuff going on. Well, to see that focus last for the entire practice um, also speaks to to the point that it's not just about him his selflessness, which is why he has, he has a unique aura of leadership that people gravitate to because it's genuine, authentic, and real. Finally, I thought this last one here was really good about Coach on, are you what your record says you are, and how do you kind of evaluate? Is there any key stats you look at to kind of just determine what type of football team you have based upon the results? Coach went into this, this long, uh, really good answer about 
how do we evaluate the team on a day-by-day basis? Here's Coach Mike McDaniel. As far as you are what your record says you are, I think there's um, truth in that because you, uh, you, you know, to spend time saying, well, but this, that, or the other is a fool's errand. However, um, I, I think teams are whatever they define themselves that day. I think, I think the Miami Dolphins are as good as their Wednesday. Um, it's kind of, I think, the approach that when you, when you watch um, great competitors across all sports um, and, and just people that are doing anything um, at a high level, there's a common denominator there, and it has nothing to do with forecasting we are this or that or whatever. It is present in the moment. And it is um, completely convicted, committed to what you're doing, knowing that that will um, affect future outcomes. So for me, um, you know what I've I've been I've been on a team that was uh, that after last year I was on a team that lost two games or won two games and lost four in a row. It was in the NFC Championship game in 2015. Um, we were five and zero in Atlanta and finished eight and eight. Um, I think whatever I think people clinging to what they their record says they are, um, you know, might be not quite focused on um, the job at hand, which is continuing to get better so you play your best football um, at the end of the season, um, which is. Uh, what teams, good teams end up doing. I think it's very hard to do that. I think there's a lot of noise about records, trends. Um, you know, you're 3-0 and you're awesome. You lose three in a row and that will always be the case. But it's always going to be distraction techniques that um, if you're truly committed um, to being your best and having your team be your best, um, you have to and feel very um, comfortable ignoring. That's the head coach. Let's go ahead and hear from your quarterback, Tua Tungavailoa, and start here first with how he felt about all the support he received following the injury. I, I would say it was pretty cool um, with the support uh, that that was shown, uh, a lot of uh, love and support. And, uh, you know, I, I would say shout-out to my neighbors um, that live in, in uh, the community that I live in. Um, they were very very respectful, very kind uh, to have made some things. They brought over notes from their kids. Uh, their kids would bring over uh, candies, you know, uh, you know, things that they would bake, um, things that they would color. So, I, you know, I, I thought that was, that was super cool. Um, you know, I could feel the, the support and my family could feel that. And then just guys from across the league reaching out. And the hardest part of the injury for Tua, here's QB1. Watching, watching my team you know, go, go out to battle and I can't, I can't do anything to help them, um, on the field. Uh, there's, there's things you can do in the locker room to keep the guys encouraged, to keep the guys going, motivated. Um, you know, but it sucks as a competitor. I want to be out there with the guys. I want to be able to go out there and, uh, you know, help our guys win games. And that, that was, a uh, you know, that's a terrible feeling that, uh, I could only watch from the sideline. 
Tua did also acknowledge the idea of throwing the football away and living to fight another down and the importance of longevity at the position for him to stay in that position uh, as the quarterback here in Miami. Here he is talking about the difference between last week and what he was doing on the practice field compared to now this week and how he was able to get back on the football field for football activities a week well, ago. Yeah, I went into last week prepping as if I were, I were going to play still. Um, you know, just being able to get back into football, uh, getting to do team activities, uh, throwing routes to the guys. But uh, I, w- I would say no different than this week. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just really excited that I can prepare um, and, you know, play uh, this Sunday. And I think uh, everyone's excited to, to go out there and, and compete um, against a really good uh, Steelers team. So there you go. Thursday preview podcast is tomorrow, as I'm sure you all know here, my favorite episode of the week, probably besides Victory Monday podcast, but I digress. We'll have the Steelers guest on Friday with a mailbag and the college football weekend, uh, all that fun stuff coming your way here on the Drive Time podcast. In the meantime, you all please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating, leave us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank podcast with Seth and Juice Wednesday night equals Twitter spaces night. So eight o'clock tonight, come find us on Twitter at Wingfield NFL to hear us talk some Dolphins football. Also the international podcast, the UK, Brazil, Spanish, uh, or I should say the Portuguese podcast and these podcast over in Spain as well. Plenty of Dolphins content for you, as well as the YouTube channel for Dolphins today and the media availabilities of all the stuff we're talking about here. And of course, last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up, Caroline, daddy's coming home.